God is calling us to become kind, merciful people. We're to show goodwill toward others. This message is the eighth in the series, Runway. The message is entitled, Commit to Kindness. Here is Pastor Dalo Shields. Grab your Bibles, your teaching sheets as we turn our attention this weekend to a continuing series of messages called Runway, and we're taking a look at some attitudes that we're talking about that will lift our lives to new levels. How do we get on this runway of life that will lift us up, that will give us the altitude that we need to live life the way God has called us to live it? And the best way to achieve higher altitude in life is to improve your attitudes. The better your attitudes are, the higher your altitude will be, that this, the more soaring there will be in your life. And the Bible is very clear about the value of attitudes. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, helps us to understand as Christian believers the importance of dealing with and letting him deal with, God deal with our attitudes. The Bible says, throw off, talking to us as Christians, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your, read the rest of it with me, your thoughts and attitude. So the Holy Spirit is very interested in how you and I think, and then from that, the attitudes that we develop. So your thinking process is key to your attitudes, how you think about God, how you think about yourself, how you think about other people, how you think about the world around you, your mindset toward all of those things will affect your attitude toward them, and your attitude toward them will impact your actions in regard to them. And so Paul says the Spirit of God is very interested in helping each one of us change the way that we think, renewing our thoughts and renewing our attitudes, obviously, so that they will be more like Christ. Now, when it comes to understanding how to develop better attitudes, we need, we need a checklist. We need something that helps us to have some kind of pattern. What are we supposed to do? What, kind of, what attitudes are the right attitudes? And the Apostle Peter helps us with this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He gives us eight attitudes that you and I need to develop in life and the impact that they will have upon us. Let me read this for you. For this very reason, make every effort. Notice this. It's going to require some effort. Make every effort to add to your, what's the first one? Faith. So everything starts with faith. Add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. So eight attitudes, starting with faith, ending with love, six sandwiched in between. Notice verse number eight. Here's this wonderful promise. For if you possess these qualities, what qualities? These eight things that he's just described, starting with faith, ending in love, and the six in between. If you possess these these qualities in increasing measure, that is, they're growing in your life, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter says, if you get this, God promises to make your life much more productive and much more powerful. That is, he will help you to arrive at a new level of living. Today, I want to talk to you about that phrase, mutual affection. One translation says brotherly kindness or brotherly love. The actual Greek word that is used there is the word that you're familiar with. It's a word that you will recognize as soon as I say it. It's a city that's just north of here, and the word is Philadelphia. Say that word with me, Philadelphia. 
It's actually the Greek word Philadelphia that means mutual affection or brotherly kindness. It means this fraternal sense of loving someone like a brother, loving someone like a sister, showing goodwill and benevolence toward others. Or the word I want to use this weekend for the concept, for the attitude that God wants you and I to develop is the attitude of kindness. That's the key word. We're going to boil all of this down to one word, the attitude of kindness. And I'd like to share with you today three things that you need to know about the attitude of kindness. The first thing that's so essential to develop kindness in our lives is is to understand that kindness actually begins with God. Before we look at our responsibility to be kind to other people, we have to start with, with God Himself and look at God's example because one of the key characteristics of God's nature is kindness. God is a kind God. Jesus, in teaching us something about loving other people and being kind to other people in Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36, reveals to us this nature of God that is we're to be like Him. Notice what He says to us, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He, that is the Most High God, He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Then He says in verse 36, be merciful or kind, another word there, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. He's kind. So here Jesus said, the reason I'm calling you to be merciful and kind and loving to other people is because that's the way God is. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 describes again this nature of God. He, God, is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. He has showered His kindness, there's that word again, on us, along with all mercy and understanding. In Titus chapter 3, 4 and 5, again, Paul describes the kindness of God. When, when God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. And then Psalm 116, verse 5, would you read this together with me? And let's read it aloud and loudly at all of our campuses. Here we go. Read enthusiastically how kind the Lord is, how good He is, so merciful, this God of ours. Now, why is this important to understand? Because if you believe that God is harsh and angry, that He's always mad at you, that He's always looking for an opportunity to extend His wrath to you, that He's always upset with you. If you have that view of God, if that's how you think about God, it'll affect how you think about people. If you think of God that way, then you will tend to be the same way toward others. But when you begin to realize how kind God is to you, it begins to help you learn something about kindness to others. Our God is a kind God. Kindness doesn't begin with humanity. Kindness begins with divinity. Kindness doesn't start in humanity. Kindness starts with God Himself. Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, had to learn something about the kindness of God. He actually understood something about God's kindness that uh, at times even frustrated Jonah. Let me give you the story so you'll understand it. You might recall how God called Jonah. He was a prophet. He was to go to a place called Nineveh, and Jonah was to proclaim to the Ninevites that they needed to repent because they were living in sin, and so there needed to be this turning from sin. And instead of going to Nineveh, what did Jonah do? He gets on a boat and goes in the opposite direction toward Tarshish. 
Now, all of us can identify with that, God calling us to do one thing, and we end up doing something else. And so we know the story of how Jonah ends up on this boat, and there's a storm, a storm that happens, and eventually he's cast overboard, and he ends up in the belly of a big fish. And he's there in the belly of this big fish, and God gets his attention. There he says, God, I'll do what you want me to do. And then the Bible says in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of, city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So God says, I'm going to give you a second chance here. You missed it on the first one, but now I'm calling you a second time to do this. And so Jonah says yes this time, and he's willing to go. And he goes and he preaches to the Ninevites, and just as God desired them to do, they repented, they turned from their sins, they repented before God. And notice verse 10 of chapter 3 of Jonah, God's response. And when God saw that they had put a stop to their evil ways, he abandoned his plan to destroy them and didn't carry it through. So God relented on his wrath. And then notice Jonah's attitude in verse, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I want you to see something about the nature of God, something Jonah knew about the nature of God. This change of plans as the fact that God was promising wrath but when they repented, he showed them mercy and kindness. This change of plans made Jonah very angry. He complained to the Lord about it. This is exactly what I thought you'd do, Lord, when I was there in my own country and you first told me to come here. That's why I ran away to Tarshish, for I knew you were a, what kind of God? Gracious God, merciful, slow to get angry, and full of, what's the word there? Kindness. I knew how easily you could cancel your plans for destroying these people. I want to remind you today, I hope that you'll hear this down in your heart, the God that we serve, the God that we worship, the God that we love and adore, we love and adore and worship Him for, for many different reasons. One of the, those reasons is because our God is a kind God, amen? He's treated you and I, He's treated us with kindness, and kindness doesn't start with people, kindness starts with God. God is kind toward you and me. The second thing I want you to know about kindness today as we're developing and working on this attitude that will take our life to a new level is to realize that kindness can be defined in a very simple way. It's defined as compassion in action. Kindness is an attitude first, but it's an attitude that results in action. It's not just a feeling of compassion that you have towards someone. God doesn't just feel kind toward us. He does kind things for us. And the same is true for you and me. When you and I begin to have this attitude of kindness, it motivates us to do something. It changes our approach to people. It changes us in at least three ways. It changes what we say to people. It changes how we say what we say to people. And it changes what we do with the people around us. Kind people speak kind words in a kind way correct? They speak kind words in a kind way. See, kind words are words like, I care about you. I'm concerned about you. I want to help you. But it's not just enough to have that vocabulary. You also have to need to have the heart that goes along with the vocabulary. You can say, I care about you, or you can say, I care about you. You see the difference? Same words, the same words of the vocabulary of kindness, but two very different messages. And so kind people don't just go into the world saying, yeah, I care about you. Kind people say, I care about you. I have compassion toward you. It's not just what you say, but how you say what you say and what you do. And Jesus actually gave us 
a tremendous lesson in kindness in one of the parables that he taught us in Luke chapter 10. Many of you are familiar with this parable. I want to take you through it in just a moment. We'll talk about some principles related to it. But it's a parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me read it for you. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, evidently some negative actions he had. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. Here's the parable. A Jewish man, what kind of man? A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Uh, by chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan. So it was a Jewish man. Now we're seeing a despised Samaritan. I'll, I'll explain this in a moment came along, and when he saw the man, he felt, what's the word there? Compassion, mercy, kindness, or other words that could be used here synonymously. He felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy or showed him kindness. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Let's see if we can talk about this story for a moment. It's a story of a Jewish man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. You need to understand the geography of this just a bit. From Jerusalem to Jericho was a, was a descent from, of about 3,300 feet in 17 miles. Think about that. In a 17-mile journey, Jerusalem and Jericho, about 17 miles apart, but you're going from about 2,500 feet above sea level that by the time you get to Jericho, it's 800 feet below sea level. Okay? And so if you've traveled that journey, and I have on a number of occasions, you will see that it's a very precipitous journey. There's all kind of curves. In fact, back in the day of Jesus, they called it the bloody path because being the bloody path represented the fact that there were places along the way where people could hide and attack you. And this is exactly what happened. So here's the Jewish man. He's on his way to Jericho. He's making this descent down from Jerusalem quickly to Jericho on this very precipitous road. And someone is lying in wait for him and mugs him, beats him up and leaves him by the roadside half dead. And so the story continues with a Jewish priest, a man from the temple in Jerusalem, making his way as well to Jericho. And the priest sees this man on the side of the road. And of course, we know the story. Instead of approaching him, he actually, according to the scripture there, he passes by. He puts as much distance as possible between him and the man. He does not want to get involved. And then a second man from the temple, a Levite or a temple assistant who helped serve with the priest there, he also approached the situation and, and saw what was going on, and he as well did the same thing as the priest did. He got as far away from the need as possibly distanced himself from the problem. He distanced himself from the need. 
But then there was another man that came down this pathway and saw this Jewish man lying by the roadside. And the Bible is very clear in the parable describing him as a Samaritan. And the Samaritan and the Jews did not get along. They hated each other. There was tremendous animosity between them. It was more than just issues of race. It had to do with just an animosity about how they worshipped and all kind of issues that they had between the two of them. And we're talking about absolutely polar opposites when it came to people that got along with each other. But here's a Samaritan. But there was something in the Samaritan's heart that was not in the heart of the other two men. There was kindness in his heart. There was compassion there. There was something in him that moved him that caused him to recognize, that's my neighbor right there. Beyond his background, beyond anything that I might know about him, that's my neighbor. And the compassion, the kindness of God was in his heart and it moved him to approach him. And he, as you saw in the story, he began to minister to him and brought him back to health and invested in the process of his restoration. And from this, I want you to see some characteristics of what kind people do. How do kind people live? Kindness is compassion in action. So notice on your notes five characteristics of kind people. Would you read them together with me? We'll read them one by one. First of all, kind people, what do they do? They see needs that others ignore. One of the prayers that you want to pray in your life, if you want to develop kindness, is God, open up my eyes to the needs that you want me to see. You're not going to see every need. You don't need to see every need because none of us can meet every need in life. But God has certain needs that He wants you to meet, and you have to have your eyes open to those needs. And so kind people have their eyes open to the needs that represent opportunities in their life. The second thing kind people read with me, stop to help when others do what? They just keep going. When you're kind, it not only means that you see the need that God wants you to bring assistance to, but you're, you're willing to actually stop and help someone when other people would just keep passing by. No, you're the one that actually stops. The third lesson, read together, that kind people sacrifice what? Resources to relieve pain and lift loads. Notice that kind people sacrifice. Here's a profound statement for you. A sacrifice is not a sacrifice unless it's a sacrifice. A sacrifice means it costs you something. It means there's something that you invest. And did this good Samaritan make a sacrifice? Yes, he did. He sacrificed his time. He sacrificed his energy. He sacrificed his effort to pick this man up. He got him to an end. He sacrificed his resources. He paid money to get this man well. He sacrificed resources to relieve pain and to lift loads. And I will tell you that when you develop more of a kindness in your heart as you and I are developing this attitude, we'll be willing to make sacrifices that we haven't made before. And sacrifices, by the way, that God always rewards. He always rewards the sacrifices of the kind. And then number four, read with me. Kind people do what? They speak words that ease burden and impart peace. Have you ever met a person before that when they talk to you, they just laid a load on you instead of lifting a load from you? Are you hearing me? Okay. They just laid a big, heavy load. And as soon as they said something, it's like you were feeling pretty good until you talked to them, right? Okay. Life was going pretty well until you had that conversation. Like, wow, you just laid a, you just laid a load on me, man. Why didn't you do that? Or you already have a load on you and someone comes along and they ask, add to your load and just presses down upon you even more. And so they speak words that add loads. And maybe you've met people before that when you get around them, instead of adding peace, they add stress, conflict. 
Kind people don't do that. Kind people know how to step into a world and actually, through their words, speak words that ease burdens and speak words that generate peace. And that's exactly what happened in the story of the Good Samaritan. This man comes by and he begins to pour in the oil and the wine, more than representative of just that physical element. He's ministering to the man. He's easing burdens. He's lifting loads. And then the fifth thing, they replace kind people. Read, read with me. They replace self-focus with service focus instead of focusing on what is in this for me and what I need how can I serve how can I be of a service to other people when this happens I promise you when you and I begin to live kind lives kind attitudes and treat people with kindness our lives begin to be lifted to an entirely new level kindness begins with God and kindness is compassion in action in your life through what you say how you say it, and in what you do. The third point today is that kindness always changes lives. Kindness is not just a nice thing to show. When you're kind to someone, that kindness will change your life. Kindness changes people. I would ask you this morning, and I'm sure you will respond affirmatively to me today, has the kindness of God changed your life? Of course it has, okay. Anytime that God has reached down to you in kindness, in His mercy, in His compassion, in His grace, that receiving of forgiveness and the kindness of God has changed us. And God's kindness is designed to change us toward us, but through us is designed to change other people around us. Did the kindness of the Good Samaritan change the life of the Jewish man by the roadside? Of course it did. His life was made better. It was healed. It was restored by someone who engaged in kindness. We're changed by kindness. I want to take you to an Old Testament story as we're wrapping up today that illustrates the power of kindness, God's kindness to you and God's kindness through you to other people and the impact it has on our lives and on the lives of other people. To give you this story, it's gonna, we're going to read in just a moment from 2 Samuel, but I need to set the story up for you just a little bit because there's, there's some characters that you need to understand, a little bit of history, okay? So I'm going to give you a setting here just for a moment. So stay right here with me. The story happens in the setting of Israel's monarchy. Israel, starting out as a nation, did not have a king. They were led by prophets and priests. And there came a time they asked for a king, and God said, okay, I'll give you a king. And they gave him the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. And so Saul began to rule and reign. He did well at the initial part of his, his kingdom. But over a period of time, he became kind of, kind of weird and strange and angry. And he got really frustrated, and he began to disobey God, do his own thinking, full of pride and arrogance and so forth. And so God said, I'm going to remove my anointing from you, Saul. You'll still be king for a period of time, but but I'm going to remove my presence from you. And during the time that Saul was still king, God was raising up another young man who was going to become the second king of Israel. Does anyone remember his name? His name was David. Exactly right. So David comes on the scene and eventually through the conflict and through a period of time, Saul is killed on the battlefield. And not only is Saul killed, but Saul's son, Jonathan, is killed as well. Jonathan had been very dear friends with David. So there are three characters in the story that you must first understand, Saul, David, and Jonathan. Say them with me, Saul, David, and Jonathan. You'll not understand this story until you understand those three characters. Now I'm going to introduce a fourth character. Jonathan had a son as well, and that son's name, as we'll see in just a moment, was Mephibosheth, okay? I'll talk about him in just a bit. So we've got now four characters. Who are those people? Saul, David, Jonathan, and Mephibosheth. 
So let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 4, and let's pick up the story, noting those characters and a bit of this history. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled, but as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became crippled. Now, let's go several years later in chapter 9 of Second Samuel. Some time has passed. David is king. Saul and Jonathan are dead. Mephibosheth is crippled. Notice now one day, the Bible says in verse 1, one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show, what is the word there? Kindness for Jonathan's sake. He summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am. Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show kindness to a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, notice this, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, Yes, my lord the king, I I am your servant. I will do all that you've commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. A lot of verses, but I want you to notice what's going on here because this is an amazing story about kindness. Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. The news was sent back to where Jonathan's son was being taken care of by a nurse, and the news was Saul, Jonathan, they'd been killed in battle, and the feeling was, in terms of a dynasty, if the king and the prince had been killed, then watch out because they're going to come in for the rest of the family. And so the nurse grabbed up the next heir to the throne who would have been a young man. Actually, his name was not initially Mephibosheth. His name was originally a different name. His name was Meribel. You can study that in the scriptures. That name meant a contender with Baal, a fighter of idolatry. Okay, might be another way to say it. And so she picked up this little boy. He was five years of age. And so she's fleeing, worrying that David and his men are going to come after him. And as she's running away with the little boy, something happened. And she dropped him. And there in that moment was a terrible accident that occurred. And this young boy at five years of age became crippled in both feet. At some point after that, his name is changed from Meribel to Mephibosheth. Say that with me, Mephibosheth. Try that from the platform, okay? It's really fun, okay? Mephibosheth. 
The name Mephibosheth has a unique Hebrew meaning. It means you are a shameful thing. That's what it means. You're nothing but shameful. And so he was not only crippled in his feet, but he was labeled with, you're a shame. We've talked about powerful names. Jabez, the name means you're a pain. Phibosheth name means you are shameful. You're a shameful thing. And so now here is Mephibosheth. He run, he's fleeing from the situation. He's crippled. He's given this name Mephibosheth and he grows up and he lives in a place called Lodabar. The word Lodabar in the Hebrew language is a term or a phrase that means a pastureless land or a land where there's no fertileness or no fruitfulness, or we might say a land of depression. See, if you can't earn a living in Lodabar, there's nothing that works there. It just doesn't work. You can't, you plant a crop and it doesn't grow because the ground is not fertile. You can't raise cattle there. You can't raise sheep there because in Lodabar, it was a terrible place to live. And so here is a man who is consumed with shame and he's living in depression. He's living in Lodabar. There he is in this place in his life, and he's living there, and he's wondering what his life is going to be. He's wondering how he's going to survive because he's afraid continually of what's going to happen. Will David ever take it out on me because I'm a part of Saul's family? What's going to occur? And David is sitting back in his palace one day, and he, he has a thought. He said, you know, Jonathan was really nice to me when I, was, when I was coming up, and I wonder if there's anybody still alive in the house of Jonathan to whom I can show. What was the word again? Kindness. The heart of David was to show what? Kindness. And here was a man living down in Lodabar. He's a shamed man living in depression and the king's thinking about how can I show kindness to him? How can I express grace to him? How can I show kindness to him? And so David begins to inquire, and ultimately they find out that Mephibosheth, where he's living, and so the news is sent to Mephibosheth. Can you imagine the day that the news came to Mephibosheth? Hey, King David wants to see you. I will tell you that initially it was not a pleasant thought for Mephibosheth. I'm sure he felt like, my goodness, this is my day. My time has run out. It's over with. I know he's probably going to kill me. Uh, That's exactly probably what's going to occur. He didn't have an understanding of the heart of kindness that David had toward him. But he's brought to the king, of course, and he has that moment where David says, you don't need to be afraid. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, your grandfather, Saul. I'm going to show you kindness from this day forward. You're going to have all the property that your grandfather had. You're going to have the servants your grandfather had. And by the way, from this time forward, you're not going to live in Lodabar any longer. You're going to live in the palace with me. And every day when my food is served, you're going to be sitting at my table. Every day when all of my royal attendants gather around to enjoy what I will provide for them, you're going to be included in that mix, Mephibosheth, because I'm pulling you out of your shame and I'm pulling you out of your depression and my kindness is being extended to you because I want to see your life changed by kindness. The kindness of God changed your life. The kindness of David changed changed Mephibosheth's life and your kindness towards someone can change their life and taking the same kind of kindness that God has shown to you and saying how can I the same kind of kindness that David showed to Mephibosheth and say God will you help me day by day to have my eyes opened I can't meet every need God but I can meet the needs you want me to meet Would you open up my eyes? Would you let me not walk on the other side of the road when I see that? Would you allow me to come near and 
Would you help me to find those Mephibosheths in my life who feel ashamed and are living in places of depression that I can come alongside and I can show kindness to as you've shown kindness to me. And I promise you that when you and I do that, that attitude of kindness that results in actions of kindness not only lifts our life to the next level, but lifts, lifts the lives of other people to a new level. I want to conclude with one last verse. I'm going to ask you to read it together with me, the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, the first part of verse 32. Would you read it together with me? And be kind to one another. Would you keep that on the screen just for a moment? It didn't say, and it would be a nice thing to be kind to each other. It's a good idea. doesn't say that, does it? Paul doesn't write and say, you know, I suggest if you're having a really good day to be kind to people. No. No, actually, in the original language, it is a command. It's not a suggestion, not just a good idea. It's not like, okay, if you feel like it, it'd be a good thing to do. No, Paul writes and says, here's my command to you. I command you to be, what's the word again? Kind to one another. Or as we're talking about today, to add to all these dimensions of our life, mutual affection or brotherly love or kindness. When we add this, it lifts us to new levels. It begins with God. It begins to be translated in our life when we understand that compassion is action toward people. What we say, how we say it, and what we do, and then to realize that when we do it, it changes lives. Would you bow your heads together with, with me as we pray? Father, this morning we come before you. We're so grateful for the kindness that you've shown to us. Lord, in our lives, we would not be where we are today if it had not been for your kindness that you've shown to us. Thank you that when we were the Mephibosheths, when we were living in the Lodabars of life, that you came to us and you reached down to us and you grabbed hold of us and you pulled us into your presence through Jesus Christ. You allowed us to sit at your table, for that we're so thankful. And God, I pray this morning that as we've been reminded of your kindness to us, I pray that you'd help us to learn how to be kind to others. We pray that you'd birth in us a freshness. Let us obey the commandment of God to be kind to one another, knowing that when we do, We're showing your love, your nature, your character to those around us. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me. And I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. And you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out. And from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God. And I promise you that he will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of his name. Say, Jesus. I know that that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us 
from the inside out and you become a new creation. All things pass away, all things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. And you begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time. If you've prayed with a pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to church-redeemer.org slash a new you. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.